0: welcome to the bloomberg surveillance podcast i'm tom Keane. daily we bring you insight from the best in economics finance investment and international relations find bloomberg surveillance on apple podcasts soundcloud bloomberg.com and of course on the bloomberg this is going to be a theme this morning john jump in here this is really really important we have seen this john for over a decade of people modeling out a higher interest rate environment, time after time after time, yeah. it hasn't happened. Dominic Constant and Credit Suisse years ago had the mother of all charts on this. It's been the great missed call of, I'm going to say, 15 years. I
1: think whenever the CEO of a bank starts making calls about markets it makes it very awkward for everyone who works at the <laughs> bank when that issue comes out a little yeah, bit later John, are you are telling me JP Morgan have nothing to do with 10 year treasuries now uh-huh. cuz you know, Jamie Dimon listens and watches with a pole. Mr. Dimon
0: listens and watches every morning you guys and nothing. you know let's let's be clear Joyce Chang John Norman Jan Lois and the rest of them they don't agree with their CEO's call on debt
1: Well, they didn't back in 2018 either when Jamie Dimon said you better be prepared to deal with rates 5% or higher. That never came around. Jamie Dimon, on the equity side of things, when it comes to his own stock, has been prolific. I remember in February 2016 when we had that huge growth shock around China and he stepped back in and basically ticked the bottom of the market when he started buying JP Morgan stock. But on the bond market, Tom, we've seen it time and time again. The people who are expecting yields to climb, and yields keep going lower. I know you caught up with Steve Major of HSBC a little bit earlier this morning, and he's out there saying 75 basis points into year-end 21.
0: Then we've got the perfect guest to carry this forward.
1: Let's get to it. Jim Caron and Morgan Stanley joining us right now. Jim, weigh in. I know it gets awkward when the CEO of a bank starts to make a call, but it's not your CEO. And I haven't heard Gorman say anything (laughs) about 10-year yields recently. So what are you looking to happen in 21?
2: So, so we are looking for yields to drift a little bit higher, um, but you know, I think a lot of these calls for inflation and significantly higher yields are are very, very premature. I I don't see this really until maybe twenty twenty four. 2025. And, and let me go through the reasoning and rationale for this. The point here is that we have a pretty significant output gap. So, trend growth in the US is just under 2%. Uh, sorry, it's, it's just about 2%. Um, and we grew this year at about minus three. So, therefore, we're, we're below trend growth by 5%. Now, that miss in trend growth is what we call an output gap and the question that everybody asks themselves is when are you going to close that output gap because that's when aggregate demand comes back into the economy and that's when you have more demand that pushes prices higher. So until the output gap closes, you don't really get higher inflation. Now, by my calculations, we would have to grow at 5% uh, in 2021 in GDP in the U.S. and 5% again in 2022. And, and that's beyond most forecasters. In other words, for next year, many forecasters have 5 or even 6% growth. But then the following year in 2022, most forecasters have somewhere between 25 and 3% growth. So we're going to fall short. So what do we need? We need a significant amount of whether it's fiscal stimulus, continued monetary support in order to get these animal spirits moving higher, to get prices moving higher. But right now, it looks like we're falling short of that. So it's not that yields can't start to rise. We're seeing that with break-evens. 10-year break-evens are around 190 basis points real yields are falling Um, all of this is is a reflection of expected stimulus whether monetary or or fiscal but we're not actually seeing the delivered inflation really coming into the into goods prices and that's really the key and unless we get that it's going to be hard to have a sustainable rise in 10-year Treasury yields beyond say 1.25% or 1.4% next year you know for a moment but that would just be a natural adjustment not an inflation scare
1: 125 on a 10-year. The idea that inflation and this reflationary narrative doesn't evolve, doesn't materialize. That's your position, Jim. Going against the consensus on that point, but when it comes to risk assets, you're perfectly aligned still with the crowd, Jim. Why?
2: Yeah, well, because you know I think that there's a shortage of securities for one. Um, There's a lot of liquidity in the marketplace and not enough securities. Corporate supply next year is going to probably be lower by in terms of net issuance. It's going to be about negative 500 billion. So we have about 1 trillion in investment grade next year we, we may expect around 1.3 trillion um, so sorry sorry 1.8 trillion yes this year and 1.3 trillion probably for next year um, the Fed is doing QE and the Fed continues to buy uh, you know 80 billion per month they may even uh, extend their maturities um, next week so the point here is is that there's a lot of money which by design is out there to flood the markets and it's just not enough security so there is going to be demand for yield so yes it is a little bit counter consensus but the but the point here is that fiscal policy and monetary policy together will actually stabilize the markets quite a bit and keep interest rates relatively low i mean i think rates rise a little bit but i don't think they rise as much as what you know some may be thinking that they might just because there's just so much cash on the sidelines that is looking for places looking for yield and it will come into the it will come into these markets. Jim
3: we've gotten a little bit philosophical in the mornings on Bloomberg surveillance and your note had a very philosophical undertone the idea that there is this incredible divergence and tension between asset prices that continue to rise due to some of these interventions from policymakers and that fundamentals really are not catching up. What's the breaking point for that?
2: Yeah, well, eventually, eventually, it does break down. So, so look, I mean, essentially, what we need to have is aggregate demand come back into the marketplace. Right? If that doesn't happen, then all we're going to do is stretch valuations more and more. Here, let, let's take this as an example. Investment grade uh, credit spreads in the U.S. is trading at about 100 basis points. Uh, high yield OAS spreads is under 400 basis basis points right now. So we've brought forward a lot of the performance in, in the market at this point for 2021. So in other words, 2020 was about a promise. Fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, and we hope that things are going to get better in 2021. So all that performance has been brought forward. If we don't deliver on this growth in 2021, so 2021 is about the delivery of the promise versus the actual promise that was made in 2020. If we don't deliver on this promise in terms of growth, then these asset prices are, are going to look a little bit expensive, and there could be an adjustment downward in price to reflect the fact that we're not growing fast enough. It's not that we're not going to grow in 2021. Yeah, is will it be enough? And if there's not I'm enough, asset prices will address down.
1: I'll tell you a great story about 2022. Just you wait, Jim Caron, <laughs> of Morgan Stanley global fixed income. Just you thank wait,
4: thank you,
0: sir. Right now, an adult conversation. On the moment in initial public offerings, Kathleen Smith has provided terrific leadership at Renaissance Capital on clarity of thought on the frenzy of the moment in IPOs. We clear the air with her uh, this morning. Kathleen, thrilled to have you with us. You know where I am on this. I'm hugely skeptical. Is this a manufactured boom? is technology companies keep private ownership and and release an ever so slight public amount, thus creating a bidding war for that ever slight public amount of shares.
4: Sure, well, you can look at it. Let me just back up by saying that 2020 is not only gonna be in the record books regarding COVID, but it's gonna be in the record books regarding. And this year we've seen billion dollars IPOs than any year on record. When you talk about the squeeze of a small amount of float to the larger value of the company, we're seeing very large deals. These aren't little deals like we saw in 99, 2000. So they're, they're, in the case of DoorDash, which is going to open for trading today, that was the largest IPO so far this year. They do have very big market caps and they're going to have to, they'll expand their tradable float eventually. But your point on uh, is it a squeeze, I think there's always a challenge of pricing right in the supply and demand, but eventually they settle in and they have to be connected with the overall market, which itself is uh, pretty frothy these days.
3: Yeah, well, Kathleen, I want to talk about the froth. And I want to just sort of zoom out, if you will, at the $160 billion raised in uh, U.S. IPOs so far this year, breaking records at a time of incredible economic distress with companies that were left for dead earlier in the year coming out as uh, darlings with much higher valuations than expected. Do you see signs of froth in the latest valuations of Airbnb, which is expected, and DoorDash, which is going to trade today?
4: Sure. We have specific uh, opinions about each of those companies. We think DoorDash looks pricey to us. We think Airbnb, maybe not so much. So I think you have to look at the company and its trajectory. But if we step back a little bit and look at overall, what is making the market so uh, uh, open right now for issuance? One is that investors have earned positive alpha returns on the existing set of IPOs that have come to market. And we have an index, the Renaissance IPO index that has shown very strong returns. Now, the reason that the returns have been strong, which actually begets more issuance, but the returns have been strong because interest rates are low, as we all all know. And then post-COVID, the digital economy has really accelerated in its um, integration in in our lives, and also the biotechs and vaccines. So the digital stocks, the biotechs, are a very common constituent of the US IPO market. That is why uh, these companies have done so well. Their growth has accelerated based upon current sec, current economic conditions. Yeah,
3: although you're looking at the, the Renaissance IPO ETF, which you said has performed very well, understatement, it's returned uh, about 120% year to date. And you said that, that basically people chasing returns, you've got Jamie Dimon looking for 1-800-CALL-ME uh, uh, to get any deal done of any sort. At what point do they have to prove that they're worth this at a time of really economic uncertainty, despite all the liquidity pumped into the market?
4: Well, that's the challenge for DoorDash, for example. With DoorDash, you have a company that's growth has soared due to the pandemic. Everyone wants food delivery. But what's going to happen once we stop, get to back to normal life? That growth trajectory has to drop. And that's the key challenge in annual, annual anal, analyzing DoorDash. In the case of Airbnb, that company's business has totally fallen apart with COVID. And they're now digging themselves out. I think in an interesting way, they've had a restructuring that's gone on with the company. So we're looking at Airbnb as a company that's going to be forward-looking on a a positive note. Valuation's going to matter.
0: Kathleen, when I read, and this is ancient history, folks, there was a thing called a red herring, and you read them. And the first thing you did is go to the capitalization. I'm seeing on the Bloomberg a preferred equity tranche of DoorDash that would choke a horse. I mean, again, I look at these as manufactured transactions to create scarcity. What about the so-called preferred equity in DoorDash? Is that a tangible private investment controlled by private shareholders?
4: I think you have to look at some of these are convertible preferred. So they become equity at the time of the IPO. But I would point to you when we think these companies are, and they may be expensive, it'll prove itself out in the market. Fair. But when when you look at companies like Zoom, that company's been public for less than two years. Do you question the value of Zoom or Moderna that created a vaccine? It's hard. These companies are new. They take time to be analyzed and figured out in the context of the overall market.
1: Kathleen, wonderful to catch up with you. Thanks for your time this morning. Kathleen Smith of Renaissance Capital. Thank you very much.
0: This is the interview of the day on the equity markets. Douglas Cass with his Seabreeze Partners. And what Cass does, folks, is he gets up, you know, he rolls out about 9 a.m. and he writes a quick memo. And, you know, usually it's perfunctory, go long, go short and that. And then every once in a while, there's a shut up, this is the real world memo. Cass wrote one of those this morning, and he joins us on shorting stocks. How bad have the shorts been hammered, Doug, in this great bull market?
5: First of all, I want to wish you a happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, Emerson said we don't grow old. When we cease to grow, we become old.
0: Oh, listen to you. you <laughs> Doug, maybe, Doug. dog, Woody
5: Allen is more appropriate. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying.
0: <laughs> Doug, I've come full circle. Okay, the Red Sox sucked when I was a kid, and now they suck now. So, you know, it's Still it's sucked. been, you know, it's full circle. What are we, Shorting Stocks, you wrote a beautiful shorting essay. Stocks. What? How bad has it been for the short crew?
5: It's been horrible. And... um I wrote an essay this morning that mentioned um, that shorting speculative stocks, it's not fun, it's not easy, and most shouldn't bother. But uh, if you immerse yourself in the more dangerous waters of short selling, there are some techniques or basic tenants to employ.
0: So much of shorting, Douglas Cass, is not what to do, but what not to do. Right, What's the, the biggest mechanic? mistake?
5: It, 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 Paul and Tom, if you think about it, um, and I've written... And I, 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 in fact, I remember a three-hour lecture on short selling in Bob Schiller's course at Yale School of Management back in 2013 that I gave. So, but I'll I will give you the cliff notes. Please. Uh, the reason why people shouldn't short stocks. Most people shouldn't short stocks is that stocks typically move over move higher over time, and um, depending upon your time frame that you're analyzing, and major indices usually increase by seven or eight percent a year. So there's this gravitational pull of stocks higher, and that's a formidable headwind to short selling. Secondly, when longs go against an investor, their portfolio weightings are reduced. But if shorts go against you, the weighting increases. Three, many shorts are crowded in short interest terms. You and I lived through a Bob Wilson's squeeze on Resorts International and many oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Uh So short squeezes are a common place, and uh, especially in some yeah. of the popular short names like uh, Tesla, yeah. and finally, uh, finally, above all, the reward versus risk is asymmetric between long and short. You can theoretically rise an infinite uh, percentage and lose an infinite percentage on the short side, but you can only make a yeah. percent if
0: the
6: company falls
5: back. Paul, that's, in called,
0: bu- that's called buying Amazon a two, which is what Cass did. Paul,
6: pick it up. <laughs> exactly right. So, Doug, I know uh, you started your career back uh, as a housing analyst at Kidder Peabody, one of the all-time great firms on Wall Street down on Hanover Square. I know you've got some thoughts about the housing sector right now. I mean, it's been one of the strong parts of this, uh, you know, pandemic wrecked economy. What do you think about the sector right here?
5: Well, I um, began to take a large short um, position and uh, wrote a bunch of negative commentary about a month ago. Um, and it's a real non-consensus view because if you look at the numbers, um, all you do is see record uh, record. Uh, Releases in terms of uh, backlogs home price realizations and units sold told brothers was a very good example the night before last But my notion and after following this industry for so long is precisely the time You want to be short the stocks? Um, basically the large gain in home prices is portability, and it's sowing the seeds for an industry downturn and This has been accompanied by a sharp move in the stocks to new highs until recently Um, And I think it's important to note that today's stretch affordability has as its source source, something that's really different, Paul, than the problems that developed back in 2007, which Tom and I used to discuss back then when I was uh, giving out some warnings, and uh, were manifested over the next uh, two years when, for the first time in history, home prices fell. Uh, Back then, yet speculation running amok, yet day trading in homes, um, you had no document mortgage loans. You had high loan-to-value lending pr- prices, policies. Today, other factors are contributing to large price increases. Um, COVID-19 obviously is serving as an accelerant of this uptrend.
6: Yeah, it's kind of where I want to go, Doug. I mean, you know, again, it just kind of amazed me as we look at all the economic data, whether it's the consumer, whether it's manufacturing. Obviously, it's just been uh, really rocked hard by the uh, pandemic-induced uh you know disruption to the economy, but the housing market has remained extraordinarily resilient. And I think people are just trying to get a sense of how much of that is record low mortgage rates versus this you know COVID phenomena of perhaps getting out of urban centers, getting more space, buying homes out in suburbia. Yeah,
5: you know, that's that's occurring. Um, but again, it's really important when you invest long or short sell um, stocks. To recognize that um, investment knowledge is, to quote Warren Buffett, is always 2021 20, viewed in the rear view, view mirror. Mm-hmm. The idea is to analyze what's going to happen. And as I said, this, this really quantum increase in home prices over the last two years, especially accelerating in the last uh, six months, I see where I am in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, is sowing the seeds for a downturn. And you saw. Look at the reaction you had to Toll Brothers. Re- Everything was record consensus. Ex- beat yeah. the heck out of consensus yeah. expectations. Stock was down 9% or over $4
0: yesterday. Yeah. Doug, on the long side, you've been long Amazon. Right now, the 2021 outlook is either I'm still in tech or I'm not in tech. Are you still in tech? And critically, are you still in Amazon? Uh,
5: I'm... Uh, i Recently reduced from a very, very large position that I've had for a long period of time to a small-sized position. Um, About this time of every year, Amazon routinely puts out uh, a non-numerical piece of fluff about their holiday business activity. They have not done it this year, Tom. And perhaps it's that the company is simply scared of antitrust issues and simply deferring the announcement until next mm-hmm. year. However, our work, our channel work indicates that Amazon shipping backlogs may be shrinking and that some deliveries are speeding up. I used to follow the paper industry closely. And if you look at backlog, especially of container board, that's all you needed to make money. And my paper industry trade sources suggest some backlog shrinkage, shrinkage relative expectations in packaging and container board products. And uh, we have spoken to five or seven of our local UPS stores in South Florida, and they're confirming our suspicion and research uh, conclusions. So uh, so, uh, this is really a non-consensus view on Amazon. I had a non-consensus view when I bought the stock. Um, And we'll see what happens. This is a big call, Um, potentially.
0: Doug, one final question, and it's simple. Everybody's moving to Florida. You were a pathbreaker on that. And, you know, down you went Do the people in Florida, stay in Florida or it when the pandemic's over, do they come back to the northern climb?
5: I think that people it's a great question. The people that I have spoken to, my friends that have moved here, either renting or in many cases, buying um, properties uh, and converting their residents from New York State, New Jersey, Connecticut to, just to Florida. Um, are, I would say, 90% of them intend to stay in Florida. It's just a great quality of life. Um, uh, it's a lot less
6: expensive and a lot more manageable.
0: What do you think, Paul? That's a pretty good salesman. You mean, <laughs> Farrow? Can you imagine John Farrow in Florida? That's a freaking oh, concept. South you Beach, can go to the right.
5: spring training games.
0: I, I, <laughs> I know. I can go watch the Sox lose to the Yankees. I went. I visited the Yankees place in Tampa. I saw Soriano pitch. He, was, he blew me away. He was.
6: Yeah, you know, absolutely.
0: Not Soriano. Yeah. Mariano. No, not Ribeiro. Mariano.
6: Yep. He's hurt right now.
0: <laughs> I don't I can't remember. Brain freeze. Doug Cass. Thank you so much for joining us with Seabreeze here. This is an important discussion. And any of you, you know, it, it's an important essay from Mr. Cass, and you have to get that through Seabreeze only. But I can't say enough about his essay this morning on shorting. Douglas Cass, Seabreeze Partners. Right now, David Rubenstein joins us, Peer to Peer Conversations, and this conversation is important because Mr. Rubenstein speaks to the gentleman who invented conversation in the modern zeitgeist. He is Klaus Schwab of Davos, and of course, uh, he has added so much to what I have done with his initiative to get people together to converse. They will shift from Davos to Singapore. Of course, Mr. Rubenstein speaking to uh, Dr. Schwab before the announcement of Singapore. David Rubenstein, many people know who Klaus Schwab uh, is. What is the distinction for those that do not know him about Dr. Schwab? He was a uh, he's a German citizen by
7: birth, Uh, was a professor at the University of Geneva and 50 years ago, came up with the idea of bringing people together, talk about global issues. It was about a couple hundred people in 1971. It's now thousands of people who go. It is seen as an overly elite gathering, but he has many young people. People are not yet, quote, elite, and it really does a good social purpose. I should disclose I'm on the board of the World Economic Forum, and I do think it's a good uh, operation. It does serve, serve useful purposes, but I recognize it has been criticized by some as overly elite. I don't really think that's fair, but that's the criticism. David,
0: I strongly agree with you, and everybody that knows me knows I'm a huge defender of what Klaus Schwab defended. And a lot of it, folks, is jealousy to go up Happy Valley. David and I have done panels there to great success as well. What does Davos look like in Singapore this year for Dr. Schwab?
7: Well, normally we are uh, trooping around, uh, trying to dodge some of the snow and other ice kinds of things. This month, we won't have that in Singapore. But I think what Klaus wanted to do is to have the first gathering, global gathering in person uh, after the virus is sort of behind us a bit. And uh, it wasn't possible to do it in Switzerland uh, because of some health reasons. So Singapore seemed like a better place. So everybody will troop there. Some of it will be virtual, though, and I think they'll have a fair number of people in, in person, though.
3: It's an interesting time to be discussing the World Economic Forum and just large confabs that have traditionally been the birthplace of a lot of interesting ideas, often that are created behind closed doors, not necessarily in the discussions on stage. David, it puts a highlight on how different 2020 has been. Do you think that the experience of the pandemic has put into cold relief the importance of these in-person meetings, or do you think that it's shown how things can migrate to a virtual type of platform?
7: The world has changed forever and there's no doubt that people don't wanna travel quite as much and they can do virtual meetings and everybody realizes there's a lot more simplicity to doing it and a lot more ease. On the other hand, for thousands of years, humans have liked human contact. And I do think that that will revert to the mean and that therefore you will have more people gathering In person but there will be a a hybrid some people will come in person some will do it virtually and that's probably what the norm is going to be in the future
3: so uh, sort of merging some of these ideas here David you're talking about the criticism that the World Economic Forum has had as being elitist do you think that this new virtual era will democratize the concept of some of these large meetings by bringing more people in and allowing them to join if not perhaps by private jet virtually
7: Sure. Um, People who can't afford to go to Davos or Singapore will be able to do it virtually with virtually no cost. And so I think that will help. And I think it'll also attract younger people who may not be able to afford to go to places like Davos from time to time. So I think it will be helpful. Yes, I do think so. And I think Klaus has been a genius at putting it all together. You know, think about this. How many things are, are still working pretty well 50 years after they were invented?
0: David, what this is about is capitalism and the arch reality that Dr. Schwab has noted, and I'm sure David Rubenstein has noted, we're not clearing markets like we used to years ago. The zombiness that is out there is tangible. When are we going to start clearing markets so we can get back to financial normality? Well,
7: I don't know because obviously there's a lot of frothiness in the markets right now. And I suspect at some point, some of that will, will, will come down and deflate a bit. There's no doubt that the world has changed and people are looking at different kinds of companies and people see it as a land rush. They want to be on the ground floor of the next Zoom in, uh, technology. And I think a lot of people feel the world has changed. And if you're not on the ground floor, you're going to miss out on great profits. That's why the frothiness is there. Some of these bets will be great. Some won't be great.
0: David Rubenstein, thank you so much, of course, with Carl uh, Carlisle. And, of course, look for Peer to Peer with Klaus Schwab, 9 p.m. on Wednesday. Uh, Looking forward to that, to say the least. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.